Um, if I've not met you, I'm one of the assistant pastors. Um, my job to open up God's word for us in Zechariah this morning. Let me pray for us as we do that. Heavenly Father, this is a complicated bit of your word that we are jumping into where uh, lots of things are hard to pin down. But you have made some things very, very clear, and we pray, please would you give us soft hearts, Lord, to, to understand, to listen to you, and above all, to, to trust you, to trust our shepherd, to see your love for us, and to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of us, and I would include myself in this, how many of us wear a keep-out sign on our hearts? Metaphorically, of course. But how many of us wear a keep-out sign on our hearts? Maybe for some of us, that will be over our whole heart. We don't trust. We don't believe. We will not follow God. And we will not listen to him. Probably for many of us, and again, I'm in this category, we have opened our hearts up to God to a point, maybe to a considerable extent. But there are still rooms, maybe darkened corners that we're only dimly aware of, maybe doors off the main hallway that we keep firmly shut to God. And today, we'll see from Zechariah that by nature, all of us would keep the door firmly closed. The keep out sign would be clear and bold, God, stay out of here. But I hope we will also see how God responds to that, not with contempt and rejection, but with patience and with compassion and with love. So, to recap the story so far, this is our Advent series where we are tracing the theme of shepherds and sheep throughout the Bible. We have seen that we were made for God, if you like, to be his sheep, his flock, who he would lead and tend and care for and love. But ever since our first ancestors, we have run away from our shepherd, and there has become ingrained in our hearts a seemingly immovable distrust in the goodness of his character and disbelief in his promises, his good word to us. So we do not want to follow our shepherd. But God, in his kindness, has been working all through human history particularly from the time of Abraham and through the history of Israel, to save sheep for himself and rebuild a flock for himself. And because we so struggle to, to trust God, to relate to God as our shepherd, he even gave human under-shepherds to lead the flock. And some of them, like Moses and Joshua and David, were really good. But we saw last week, the problem is most of them well, all of them died, sooner or later. 
And too many of the shepherds that followed them were bad shepherds who neglected the flock, who led the flock astray, who abused the flock. And so we saw that God promised in Ezekiel 34, he would send another shepherd. He himself would come to shepherd his flock, to rescue his flock and care for them. We also saw that he would send a Davidic shepherd, one in the line of King David. So we, we, we have this slightly ambiguous human divine shepherd who's going to come and care for God's people. And in Zechariah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of the second half of the book, which is what we're diving into. Zechariah is speaking uh, maybe up to 100 years after Ezekiel, probably a bit less than that. The people of Israel, or Judah at least, are back in the land. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. We're getting towards the end of Zechariah's life. And in chapters 9 to 14, the Lord gives him these two oracles or prophecies which pick up on the shepherd theme, which is why we're going to them. We, we see, if you flick briefly to chapter 9 to verse 16, although Judah has suffered at the hands of the nations and will suffer, God will save his people like a shepherd does his flock. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, we see, sadly, things haven't improved that much from Ezekiel's time. There is still idolatry among God's people. There are still bad shepherds abusing them. But the Lord will come and punish those bad shepherds, just as he said in Ezekiel 34, and he will care for his flock. So far, so good. So far, that is what we're expecting. But in chapters 11 to 13, as Matt's already alluded to, we get a shock, a big shock. Zechariah acts out this example of the good shepherd pointing to this Davidic divine shepherd from Ezekiel 34, the, the good shepherd who will come to shepherd God's people. But the flock detests him. If you flick to chapter 11, verse 8, it says, the flock detested me. And I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Those who are left, let those who are left eat one another's flesh. So the flock, when the good shepherd finally comes, don't actually want him. In fact, we see in, in, in verse uh, 12 of chapter 13, they pay him to go away, but they pay him the measly price of a male slave in ancient Israel, 30 pieces of silver. You may remember that that is what Judas was paid to betray Jesus. So the flock reject the shepherd. They get rid of him with contempt. And so the shepherd hands them back over to the bad shepherds to suffer at the hands of one another and to suffer at the hands of the nations for an indeterminate period of time. And this is my first point this morning. We need to wake up to the horror of our rejection of the shepherd. We need to wake up to the horror 
of our rejection of the shepherd. And why do I say our when this is talking about Israel? Well, think what this says about the human heart. If even the Jewish people who had over sort of 1,000 and 1,300 years up to that point been shown so much of God's kindness, his mercy, his power, working to rescue them, to forgive them, to bear with them, to bring them back from exile. If they had seen all of that and they still rejected the Good Shepherd when he came, what must that say about the human heart? How would any of the rest of us be any different? We see in in verse 5 of chapter 11, it says that the buyers slaughter them, the sheep, and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. Life was miserable for the people of Israel, Judah, under the shepherds, the bad shepherds of that day. But they so distrusted God's character, so disbelieved his word, that they would still rather have the bad shepherds than God's good shepherd. Isn't that tragic? They so loved their own sin and the the false promise of, of happiness, of security in idols, that they would rather have abusive leaders who would leave them in their sin than God's divine shepherd who exposes their sin. We see something of that in John chapter 3, in verses um, 19 to 20. Jesus has come into the world, the light of the world. But John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. So God's people do not want to come to the Good Shepherd. If I can give an illustration to help you picture this. It's a little like a die-hard Chelsea football fan drowning in the River Thames yelling for help at the top of their lungs. And someone comes along, and someone throws a life ring out into the water. But then our drowning Chelsea fan spots that they are wearing an Arsenal shirt. (laughs) And they refuse to take the life ring. They want help. They want to be rescued. But not by him. Not by him. How many people in our world would love to be rescued from the misery of abusive leadership, of which there is all too much, or from the disappointment of being failed again and again by the idols of of sexual freedom or self-determination or security and affirmation in relationships that never quite deliver, or the allure of money and possessions and experiences that only keep us happy for a moment. How many people would love to be rescued from misery and disappointment? But when God, in the Lord Jesus, comes as Good Shepherd and offers rescue, they refuse. Salvation, yes, we want that, but not from you. 
not on your terms. The big keep out sign on the heart saying, stay out God. I wonder, is, is that you? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, do you realize that God has come in person just as Zechariah and Ezekiel and others pointed to to be the good shepherd of your soul in Jesus Christ, to love you, to care for you, to tend you and lead you, to bind up those wounds and bring relief from that disappointment. Do you realize the cost of rejecting him? God, like Ezekiel and uh, um, Zechariah in, in chapter 11, will, sooner or later, give you over to the leaders and the desires that you want. And it will end in misery and in death and finally in judgment. There won't be a happily ever after if we reject the Good Shepherd. Is your sin really worth clinging to? For such an end? And if you are a Christian, is there a part of your heart that, like I said in the introduction, that you are keeping from God? Somewhere that you really don't want him poking his nose in. Either a a sin that you still secretly love to indulge, or an idol that you keep chasing, because even though it keeps disappointing you and leaving you feeling guilty and ashamed, The promise is just too alluring, and the the chase is too exciting. And that fleeting moment where you grasp it feels too good. I think that's probably all of us. Certainly me. I notice that particularly in areas where God wants to pull me out of my comfort zone. My heart's response is to say, no, I'll, I'll go there and I'll go there, but I don't want to go there, God. No thanks. Maybe for some of us, we are very aware of those parts of our hearts where the keep out sign is. For some of us, maybe we're not. And in one sense, that's because Christ is so kind to us and patient with us. He doesn't show us all our sin at once, but only very slowly in a trip, trip, drip through our lifetimes, because otherwise we'd be crushed. We would give up in despair. But if there is, you're not aware of where those keep out signs are, maybe you need to pray that he would gently show you. And then what do we do? When, when we see those dark areas of our hearts, what do we do? And this is my, my second and only other point. We need to wake up to the saving love of God. We need to wake up to the saving love of God. And that is what Zechariah shows us so incredibly in chapters 12 and 13. We're in for another shock, because in 13 verse 7, we find out that it is God's will to strike his good shepherd. Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. 
strike the sheep and the shepherd will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So God knew that his people would reject the good shepherd, but what they intended for evil, he sovereignly intended for good. So he gives the shepherd over to the sword, this symbol of violence and death. You may be wondering, how on earth could this be good? Well, if we flick back to 12 verse 10, where we began our reading, we get yet another shock. Because the man they struck, the man who was pierced, the good shepherd, is also God himself. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So God will turn the spilt blood Well, no, sorry. Firstly, um, I'm getting ahead of myself. We see that the blood that is spilt is not simply that of a man, but somehow it belongs to God. And then we see in 13 verse 1 that God will turn the blood of this human divine shepherd into a fountain of mercy for his people, cleansing from sin and impurity. Just as we've seen so many times before in the Old Testament, whether it's in the spotless Passover lamb, which has to die in the place of the firstborn sons of the Israelites in Egypt, or the spotless lambs, rams, goats, whatever, used for burnt offerings and sin offerings in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, who are identified with the sins of the people, but then bear the consequences as substitutes. Or even like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who is made a guilt offering by the Lord and cut off for the sins of the people, pierced for their transgressions. So it is here. The perfect, innocent, sinless good shepherd, human and divine, is pierced to pay the price for the people's sin and to bear bear the separation that their impurity deserves before a holy God. Like an innocent person falsely convicted and condemned in court for a murder they didn't commit, except that this person has willingly put themselves in the dock and willingly presents their neck to the hangman so someone else can can go free. And the result for for the Jewish people, and we see elsewhere in Zechariah, for any of the Gentiles who will come with them, is that if we come and trust in God's provision through the pierced shepherd, our sin will be cleansed, washed away and forgiven. And as we, we would learn if we were to flick to John chapter 19, in the Gospels, this is fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion as his, his wrists, his feet 
and his side are pierced. And John quotes Zechariah 12, verse 10, in 19, verse 37, to show, to show that this human divine shepherd has been pierced for our salvation. What do we do with all this? What do we do with this? Well, if, if we were to look back to chapter 12, verses 10 to 14, firstly, how do we see the people respond? How do we see them respond to the realization that their good shepherd, this human divine shepherd, was pierced by them, for them? What they do is they mourn and grieve. They mourn, and we should mourn, and we should grieve that the human heart is so twisted and so distrusting of God that we would, left to ourselves, and maybe if you, you can't remember a day when you weren't a Christian, you know, you've mercifully not felt this, but for, for most of us, left, for, left to ourselves, we would have killed the good shepherd who came to turn us from sin. We should mourn and grieve. But we should also see in verse 10 that Mourning and grief only comes as the result of God pouring out a spirit, his spirit, of grace and supplication. Pleading, if you like. It is not natural for us to mourn the rejection of our shepherd. He has to change our hearts by his spirit for us to do that. And so to the extent that you and I and so many in the world around us don't mourn and grieve our sin and our rejection of God, that keep-out sign on our hearts, to the extent we don't mourn it, we need to pray for that spirit. And if we're already Christians, we need to pray for more of that spirit and for him to penetrate through those doors in our hearts that are still closed. And we should pray especially for the Jewish people. Because as Paul confirms in Romans 12, most, not all, but most of them rejected the good shepherd Jesus when he came, and so many of them continue to do so. From the little I know, there have been encouraging signs that more and more have been turning in the, the last decade or two and following Jesus as Messiah, but so many do not. And in one sense, that has been good news for Gentiles like me and most of us here. <laughs> Because Paul says that is how God has opened up a door for the good news to come to us. And he has poured out that spirit of um, grace and supplication on us Gentiles so that we would mourn and grieve and turn and be saved. But Paul says that through that, the full number of God's faithful remnants among the Jews will also eventually become jealous. They will want that salvation and they also will turn. So we should pray. We should pray. Pray for all Gentiles, every nation to hear the good news and for God to pour out that spirit. But also pray that the time will come soon when he pours out his spirit upon the Jewish people. Because from what Paul said it's not happened yet for most of them. 
we should respond firstly by praying for God's Spirit so that we and all around us mourn and grieve rightly over our pierced shepherd. But secondly and finally, we really should be amazed at the overwhelming love of God in these events. We should be amazed at the love of God. Isn't, isn't it incredible that in that moment when the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus, was rejected, God didn't wash his hands of the Jewish people or the Gentiles. He didn't say, that's it, you've had your last chance, I'm done with you. Isn't, isn't that how we would respond if we were that badly rejected by someone? We would want nothing more to do with them. And incredibly, it is in that moment instead that God chose to save us. The blood that was so wrongly spilt has become the fountain to cleanse us. How great is his love? How staggering is his mercy and forbearance. What humans purpose for evil, God in his love purposed for our good. And Jesus as the good shepherd willingly gave himself up to be pierced for us. How can we not follow our shepherd, when he has loved us in the face of such rejection? How can we not open our hearts to him? How can we not trust that his will for our lives is good, even when it is most unappealing, even when we find it hardest to believe that following him will actually bring our flourishing and our eternal joy? When he has shown us such love, how can we not trust our shepherd? Whether it's for the first time, or the hundred and first time, will you take that keep out sign off your hearts today? And let your shepherd in, and let him lead you, because he loves you. Let's take a moment in quiet, and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, wherever we stand before you this morning, please would you pour out on us more of that spirit of grace, of supplication, of pleading. Lord, that we would mourn our sin instead of loving it, that we would hate idols and false prophecy and false teaching that we hear from so many around us instead of following them. Lord, that we would be overwhelmed 
by the exquisite love you have shown us. The patience and forbearance that even in our greatest rejection of you, you are working to save us. Help us, Lord, that we would willingly follow you and take off the keep out signs. Amen.